Hi, everybody. It is uh, July 8th. It's a Friday, 2022. And I am joining you here from uh, my house here in Washington, D.C. I hope you're doing so well. Thumbs up on the video if you're watching on YouTube. You can subscribe. That'd be great. All those fun little things. Um, we usually do this on Thursdays. Again, I had teased sort of a Tuesday beginning, which I think we're eventually going to move to. But uh, I was going to do it yesterday. And then your boy caught the old Rona in... Uh, Las Vegas, and thanks everyone out there, because now I think my daughter has it, which is so much fun, so much fun, so thanks to all the people who just walk around diseased like that, um, I feel fine, I, I mean, I have, I, it sounds like I have a cold, uh, the only issue yesterday was I was super tired, just had fatigue, and my wife was like, I hadn't slept since coming back from Vegas, I can't sleep in hotels anymore, it's not like I can just catch up, even though I'm not like around like, you know, kid duties or whatever, I just can't catch up, so I had all that built up, then I got home, and then I got, I had symptoms pretty, pretty quickly once getting home, and um, so now I'm quarantining, which is fun, but I feel pretty good, I feel pretty good, uh, I'm doing a lot better. I'm just a little, I'm not, not worried about me at all, actually. I'm just a little worried about my kid, so that's not great. But I feel I feel good. I feel certainly great enough to do this. I did MK earlier today, so appreciate you all dealing with the changes. Appreciate you all tuning in. Today we'll get to whatever your questions are. I haven't even seen the updated ones, but obviously we'll get to any kind of UFC 276 stuff, any stuff that's coming up, whatever else is on your mind. So without further ado, let's get this party started, shall we? Yay, there we are. Uh, okay, let's pull up your questions, shall we? Let me turn this off. There we are. All right. Okay. There we go. All right, so um, if you guys want to leave a donation, I, again... That's really what they are. It's just a donation. But if you want to leave a donation, I would certainly appreciate it. And then if you want to attach a question to it, I'd be happy to take a look to those at the end. We'll go for about uh, an hour with the free questions from the thread that I put up on Wednesday. So <clears throat> I know this is all late, my, but my throat is holding up. My energy is good. I feel basically like i just getting over a cold. Um, but keep your fingers crossed for my kid because that's the only thing I really care about at this point. Yeah, I think that's all pretty reasonable, right? All right. Uh, okay. Let's go here first. Hey, Luke, do you see any world where Max could still become the greatest featherweight ever? For example, Volk moves up, allowing Max to recapture, and then defend multiple times. Or does the 0-3 record against Volk cement him always one spot below? P.S. I acknowledge Aldo is the current GOAT. Um, in, it's possible. It's highly unlikely. Highly unlikely. I think that in the end... Uh, Max will, first of all, his career is not over by any stretch. It's a little bit unclear about what he's going to do because obviously there is no title future at featherweight so long as Volkanovski is there. Now, Volkanovski is not a spring chicken, but he's obviously at 33, like in his peak of his prime. So it's going to be a while before that decline really catches up with him, probably. And 155, I think, is an area where he can win fights. But he went up and fought, you know, a very, very, very good Dustin Poirier, but kind of got outgunned in that one a little bit. Uh, although he held his own. I mean, he certainly 
did better against Dustin Poirier than against Max and against Volkanovski in the third fight. So I hardly think he's done beating very good fighters. I hardly think he's done beating good fighters in relevant contests. But it's a little unclear about a what his future is going to be, and b it would require something extraordinary to answer the question that you made about being the best featherweight. It would require something extraordinary, even if Volkanovski were to leave the belt and then. Um, Max would go on to some kind of title reign. The emptiness with which you indicate the three losses to Volkanovski, including how thorough the third one was, it's going to be very, very, very difficult to build that back. Or, you know, maybe he could find a way when they both move to 155 to get some kind of a fourth fight and whatever. But, like, in general, three losses to the same one, including the third one being the most authoritative it's not like Max is old at 30, but as we know, that's 10 years of being in the UFC, so that is a long time. There's a lot. There's a lot there. All right, I think... There we go. Okay. Uh, Luke, what would you attribute to the technical issues that MK has had in the past couple of years? Not to name names, but is it a staff issue, an equipment issue? Have you and BC brought those issues to CBS higher-ups? Listen... Whatever the issues are, they're not going to get solved by me answering them here on the chat in this way. You guys know I make a genuine effort at trying to be as honest with you in the, the ways that I can. There are limits to that, uh, and this would be one of those limits. I think this is better addressed in-house. What I can tell you is we are aware of them. Um, we're working to solve them. Some of the problems are easy to fix, and some of them are not, and we're doing our best. But in general, I want to say that I feel very grateful for the support that CBS and Showtime have shown us. So I know that's not the answer you're looking for, and that's not the real answer, but it's the best one I can give you given the circumstances, and I hope you can appreciate that. Luke, after last weekend's main event, should Max Holloway be planning an exit strategy? It's not that I don't think he can dish it out on some of the best the division has to offer, but he'd probably also take damage for minimal gain. Does a fight with McGregor seem more plausible now? Sure. Or perhaps a fight with Cejudo? Sure, actually. That wouldn't be so bad. Um, actually, it'd be great. Yeah, I, I do think so. I, I Again, I th I'm told that he makes a tremendous amount um, with some of his outside-the-cage activities, including but not limited to, and I should say most especially gaming. And so I think he already has been planning for, not like a retirement is eminent, I don't mean in that way, but he's always had a clear long-term vision that, you're going to do as much as you can with this, and then it's time to go when it's time to go. Make sure that you have feathered that nest beforehand, and you're seeing a, a lot of that already. Um, and so, yes, I agree. Like, you know, what would be the point of him taking a fight on, like, a main event of a, I'll make something up, a fight night card against a very good fighter with very limited popularity and upside? Like, what would be the good in that, you know, for him? Hardly anything. Um, so... I don't know. All of this also is just a, just a function of what he wants. It's a function of how he sees things and what his values are. But I did try to be honest with him for whatever my perspective is worth that you know he's done incredible things, but we are getting to a point where having a greater emphasis, like the amount of emphasis that they put on not sparring as a way to preserve health, I think some of that, should be shifted to what he's meaningfully getting out of the fights themselves. Because if there's no realistic path to the title at featherweight and a one at lightweight also seems, if not equally, perhaps even further away, 
So then you're in a place where you can't really win titles. What do you want to do? Now, I saw Rich Franklin bounce around two different weight classes, 185 and 205, taking on very relevant fighters in very difficult contests. But, you know, I also saw him get slept by Kung Lee and... Although he did the sleeping of Chuck Liddell, like he, it was an it was a mixed bag. There was definitely still some high points in that fight. You know, you could even say the Dan Henderson fight. He was kind of not robbed, but it maybe should have gone his way. Um, there's a few there's a few things. It's not it's not entirely over by any stretch. Uh, there are big fights possible, absolutely, but the cost benefit analysis becomes significantly more in focus. I think is the issue. Luke, a couple of questions about Alex Pereira. What is the likelihood he's next for Izzy? Yeah, high, if not inevitable. Also, what factors do you think determine the outcome of that fight? Obviously, their two kickboxing matches matter to some degree, but beyond compelling marketing, how much do they matter? Uh, thanks for your continued honesty. Well, I, you know, I rewatched the second fight yesterday uh, in my boredom. I watched a bunch of movies. I watched, I watched, um, I got up early. I watched The Eraser. With James Conner and Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's silly, but it was fun. Um, I watched Deliverance, which was... I hadn't seen that in I don't know how long. <coughs> I watched like the first half of Seven, and I guess too, it was too dark and grimy. So then I watched some fights that I had missed or hadn't seen in a while. One of them was this one. Uh, what I would say is that like... You know what's funny... Uh, I, I put up I, Gabriel Varga, who was who won at Karate Combat, who has been a who was a Bellator champion, or I think it was a Glory champion as well, Bellator kickboxing champion, I should say, for when they had that around. Uh, a very decorated kickboxer. He put out a video talking about the glove size and to what extent that would matter. And I remember he put out a video in addition to that one years ago, explaining why Izzy's sort of evasion movement style doesn't work so well in kickboxing, but is very good in MMA. You should check that out. And then as it pertains to the one I'm referencing now, which was about glove size, he thinks that actually favors Izzy because we already know that Alex has huge power even with the regular kickboxing gloves. And the, the fight is almost certainly going to be taking place on the feet. It's like, can Pereira knock Izzy out? Like, like we already know the answer to that. The question is, what is Izzy going to be able to do to him? And Izzy was tuning him up. They did like a, they were, you know, they, he, Izzy fucked him up prior to that stoppage. And you can hear Tuki uh, having some issues. Um, what I would say is what's kind of interesting in that fight is Pereira doesn't look a lot like the super modern version of himself. And frankly, neither does Izzy. Izzy was kind of almost spamming right hands in that fight. And they were landing. I mean, they were doing significant damage. But... Um, sorry, my daughter's distracting me because I'm a little bit concerned about her. But... Uh, the biggest difference for me is that, among many things, glove size and everything else, the space of the octagon. Right, he'll have more. The dizzy will have more room to move than a, than four right angles. But on top of that, both guys appear to be much more polished versions, much more polished versions. Uh, I think you could get another reserved Izzy. I also think you can get a situation where Pereira could bring out the best of them. You could get either, but. I think if you go and look at the second fight and either conclusion you want to draw, oh, Pereira knocked him out, it'll happen again. Right, but the set of circumstances that led to that one, you could see them, but I don't know. Obviously, the left hook is a you know a moneymaker for Pereira. And then secondly, you could be like, oh, well, Izzy was beating his ass, which he was. I mean, Izzy was tuning him up pretty clearly. 
Um, at the same time, the way in which Izzy did it was so anathema, or at least very distinct from the way he fights today. I'm not just saying like the boring version, if that's what you think. I mean, like more generally, the, the there's just a certain kind of polish that he has overall mechanically from what shots he's picking. There's just a lot more to what he does now that that version didn't really show. So it's a very different fight. It's a very different fight. It could end the same way, either way, with a, with a Pereira knockout or is he beating his ass for five rounds or how, you know, it could end in either one of those. But I think the weapons that both of them have, the setups are more refined, they're more polished, they have more weapons. Um, and yeah, they're going to have different gloves and much more space to move. It's, it could be very interesting, but I think if it's going to be a little distinct from the Cannoneer fight, which I certainly think that it will be, It'll be a function of what Pereira does. Um, how do I... Someone has nice things to say, but then the question is, how do I respond to why I like MMA to family members who see it simply as violent and brutal? I mean, I get that it is both of those things, but I can't really articulate why I'm so passionate about the sport. I feel like saying MMA is simply brutal and violent is like saying soccer is just kicking a ball. Yes. Soccer is kicking a ball, but reducing it to its simplistic definition ignores the tactic and tactics and strategies involved in the game, the skill, talent, athleticism, and stuff like players like Messi and Zidane are artists on the ball, like watching poetry in motion. What is a good rebuttal to MMA is just violence? Well, the first thing I would say is you do need to meet them halfway. It is very violent. It is very violent, and that's going to mean a lot of things for a lot of people. This sounds silly, dude, but the older I get, the more it becomes true. Dude, people who've had like traumatic life experiences, like really bad car wrecks or forever hospitalized for some reason, dude, they just don't have an appetite for shit like this. You know, and again, there will be some people who've had really rough upbringings and were in, you know, all kinds of mishaps and then they love it. It's never one to one. But violence as a consumer product and the way in which it's delivered is not for everybody. And that doesn't make them lesser people or whatever. Dude, my best friends don't watch it and I don't care at all. Like, I have. I don't need them to like it for us to be friends, right? It'd be cool if they did. I mean, I'd, that'd be awesome, you know? I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, dissuade it or something, but I don't need it. I don't need it, and they don't like it, and that's what it is. And that's what that's completely okay by me. Now, of course, I do have some friends, even here in D.C., shouts to my boy Raphael, you know, who, who might train or have fought themselves or love MMA. Uh, great. That's great, too. Like, But I don't... I, I understand that violence as a consumer product, especially the very grisly kind of violence that MMA offers, dude, it's not for everybody. So you've got you're already eliminating a lot of people from the pool who are not bad people, who are not stupid people. You know, yeah, maybe they're not with it in certain ways. Like, you know, I obviously it's gonna the acceptance of MMA is gonna be somewhat a function of age. But um accept that. Accept that it's violent, and because it's violent it's going to turn off a lot of people, people you might otherwise get along with just fine. That's the first thing I'd say. I think the second thing I'd say is, um, it is violent, but that violence is what magnifies both the action and the stakes and is what brings to bear everything else. What do I mean? If you're cooking a dish over a hot flame, uh, yes, that fire is dangerous. 
right? You can't just put your hand over it and, and, and expect not bad things to happen, certainly over long periods of time. But it is in that cauldron that you cook the food. It is in that cauldron that everything comes together. That is the thing that reveals everything else. Yes, there is extraordinary amounts of violence, sometimes quite gratuitous versions. And there can be poor referee stoppages. We just saw Bigfoot competing. I don't know where he was. I'm sure in some place where he doesn't need a... Obviously, no place in North America will give him a license at this point. But, you know, whatever it is. Like, you can see gross things that happen in the game. But the reality is, is through the violence, it creates a series of stakes, getting viciously knocked out, embarrassed, whatever, all the things that make injury, all the things that may go into it. And through that, what ends up being revealed is extraordinary moments and... Uh, displays of athletic courage, of extraordinary intelligence, of calm, of perseverance, of character. And this is a thing that I'm big on too. Listen, people think that violence is the opposite of science, but it's not. They are, they can be partners as much as they can be enemies. And the very, very best fighters, the really good ones, they're the ones that understand that they work in concert together. The, the, the thing that you find with all the best fighters is maybe as people, they're good or bad parents or they're good or bad at things outside of fighting. But when it comes to fighting, they have extremely high fight IQs, right? Izzy has a high fight IQ. John Jones has high fight IQ. Habib was, is just, was ahead of the game in terms of his insights into the game. And it was through violence that these things were revealed. Now, again, a takedown isn't by itself the whole thing, but through MMA, through these acts... You, don't, you not only get this revelation of character that in many ways is not in other ways noticeable, but you get these displays of personality. You get these displays of um, brilliance through sort of the, the, the problem-solving skills. And then when you measure marry all those things with the violence, you get extraordinary forms of action and sport and all kinds of stuff. It just... It is a thing that cooks these, it, it, it cooks the heat from the flame, cooks it in such a way where you get this much greater dish. Now, that might not be for everyone, and I fully accept it. I 100% understand it. Um, but to say that it's just violence is, again, it's sort of like telling a chef that this is just fire. No, it's a lot more than that. It is fire. It is fire. But it's a lot more than that. And you're missing a significant detail in both intelligence and and athletic courage and all of these other things that bring to light an enormous understanding of the human experience in all kinds of ways that is frankly delightful and thrilling and sometimes hard to watch. But it's a unique combination. The last thing I'd say as a spectator is, you know, this is why you have to put limits and rules and what those rules are and, and how they should be addressed and everything. That can be a little bit harder to figure out, right? What, what, what's exactly the right thing to do in all times. But, dude, we have a natural, like, I'm not going to say bloodlust, but although we might have that too, but we have a natural desire for thrill. We just want it somewhat contained. It's like what makes a roller coaster a roller coaster. You can, you're, you're physically moving in a way that were absent the straps that hold you there and then this device being tested by safety and all these other rules 
and being designed by engineers, you would die or be maimed or some kind of awful thing. But they can give you this thrilling experience by virtue of the constraint of these safety mechanisms. I would also say that part of the way which MMA is reined in and professionalized allows you to experience a set of things that would otherwise be impossible to see. There's a, there's a certain unique beauty to it. Uh, not for everybody, but for people who are willing to have more of, I think, an understanding of, of why people are interested in this sort of thing. Luke, I wanted to get your thoughts on the Militich fighting systems gyms when it was around. I got into MMA in January 2021. Oh, very late. I was shocked to find out that my hometown of Bettendorf, Iowa, was once home to a premier MMA gym. Jesus. It's amazing to me to hear things like this. I mean, it makes total sense. But Bettendorf, Iowa was mentioned on every UFC broadcast, it seemed like, for years. You couldn't read an article in a magazine, or hear, which at the time were big. Or hear a UFC broadcast without someone bringing up Bettendorf, Iowa all the time. And that was two blocks from my elementary school. In your opinion, what impact did the gym have on MMA at the time? Dude, for a time, it was the preeminent gym. I think they had multiple champions. They had uh, Hughes and Sylvia. They had... I mean, they had other hammers there as well. Um, they had, obviously, Lawler was there, and there was a bunch of guys. I think Drew McFedries went through there for a while, but it was more than that, and Billy Rush was big there for a while, um, who was a, like a trainer and like a dietitian and all this stuff. Dude, it was the epicenter of at least American MMA in terms of gyms for a while. It's you know I don't think it was the only big one. That's not quite true. There were some other big ones as well. ATT has been big for a long time. AKA has been big for a long time. There's been a lot of them that have been big for a while. But, dude, they were the brand leader. They were the brand leader. That was the biggest, most successful. At their peak, that was the biggest, most successful gym in certainly North America, if not the world, for a short short but real window. And at other points, when it wasn't the biggest, it was you know second or third or certainly in that conversation. They not only produced champions – but they recruited a bunch of other ones. Jens Pulver went through there as well. Like they had a, a lot of champions, and they were kind of known for hardcore sparring, hardcore training, hardcore weight cutting, hardcore hazing, all that kind of stuff. They were just known as like the toughest. I'm trying to think of like what the equivalent would be. It's not quite true because Westside had its own training systems that was a, a little bit different and have. Well, I'm mean, in many ways it might be the same, but it was it felt a little bit like the West Side uh, gym, which is I think in Columbus, Ohio, or maybe it's Cincinnati. I'm not even sure anymore. Uh, where you know it had this like the guys who came out of there were, well, although I guess you could say Matt Winning was the only really truly winning guy for raw stuff out there. The point I'm trying to make is it just had this reputation as like the guys who came out of there were like born of fire and. They knew about all what it meant to sacrifice and suffer. And that was when we thought that like deprivation and difficulty and, you know, getting your ass kicked in training. We thought that that was a thing that at the time most of us did. That was what you needed to get over the hump. You had to be hardened by these processes and get over them. And of course they, you know, they obviously had great training and bringing in Matt Hughes was big. And Matt Hughes was part of that era where wrestlers were getting into MMA. He was one of the better ones. You know, I was having a two-time All-American in NCAA wrestling where he was kind of advancing what it meant to like be good at grappling and be good at and or jujitsu and get good at uh, MMA and bring those all together into like a coherent 
version of them both. Like before Matt Hughes elevated that, that wasn't exactly as common as you might imagine. He wasn't the only one doing it, to be clear, but he was doing it at a very high level and it was athletically very strong. I mean, those guys were just known for it, man. And that was part of the story of Tim Sylvia. Like Tim Sylvia ate, ate all the shit in the world during his career, but he beat really good guys. He beat and stopped Orlovsky and, and Gam McGee and Rico Rodriguez and a lot of guys. And, you know, he was he was big. He was like 6'9", but... Uh, you know, he didn't look exactly all that athletic. You know, Tyson Fury has a bunch of fat on him, but he's pretty clearly athletic. Tim Sylvia was like the opposite. He was only taken seriously. Yes, he was winning big fights, but he was taken seriously because the other guys at Militich, who at first, like, you know, apparently hazed the fuck out of him, kind of came around to him and realized, hey, this guy's going to stick it out. And he did. He stuck it all. He stuck through all of the difficulties in training and hazing and everything else. And made it. Yeah, dude, for a time, it was the most important gym in the world, maybe. For a time. For a while. And then even when it wasn't the most, it was pretty high up for a long time. And it just kind of slowly faded away. I remember the first time it really began to fade in relevance is when Matt Hughes and Robbie peeled off on their own and went to develop their own place in Illinois. I forget the name of that. I forget the name of it. They had it for a time. Maybe Matt Hughes kept it for a time before his train accident. Or I'm not sure what happened with it. Obviously, Robbie eventually went down to South Florida and had a lot of success there. But, dude, Miltich Fighting Systems was was the place to be in MMA for a long time. In light of uh, Volkanovski's recent ambitions to move to lightweight, how do you see him matching up against the current top five in the division? Well, let's pull that up, shall we? Top five. Number one, Charles. Obviously, Charles is a very difficult fight. Um, two is Poirier. Three is Gaethje. Four is Makachev. Five is Chandler. Those are all tough fights. I would imagine he could win at least a couple of those. The Gaethje fight, I think he could win by virtue of speed and pocket presence. Um, maybe with Poirier and Chandler, too. It's the Makachev and Oliveira fights that are. But even against Makachev, dude, like Volk's takedown defense is phenomenal. His physicality is outrageous. His speed and strength is good. I do think he would just be, ha he would have to beat those guys by virtue of the accumulation of like pot shotting. Um, he could maybe win three of those for sure. Against Islam and Oliveira, though, that's mm, that's tough. It we just I just need to see how his game translates up a weight class. It's just hard to say, but I think I think he'd be competitive against all of them, all of them. I mean that I mean that quite sincerely. Luke, would you bring on Jim Miller for a room service diaries? Yeah, I would love to. Would love to. Luke, do you know the reason why FIFA did not give any World Cup games to DC? Yes. Seems strange the capital city are not hosting any games. No, it's not strange at all, actually. Uh, I'm surprised they didn't give any to Baltimore, although Baltimore-Washington had made a co-bid. Uh, so I guess it meant all or nothing. But uh, if you guys don't know, you should look up the ratings for the World Cup every year. DCs are some of the highest in the United States, if not number one for all the major markets, routinely. I've said this before, like the, um, the amount of international people here is crazy, and the level of love for soccer aka football whatever is extremely high here if you came here you you drive around here on saturdays you'll see pickup 
soccer soccer or football games all over the city and by all ages and sometimes by like ethnicities like i know that there's like i have some buddies who are from eritrea there's like eritrean leagues where people set up i've I got some buddies that are you know hispanic there's they're not hispanic leagues but the teams are all basically filled with nothing but hispanic dudes like there's all kinds of clubs and churches and organizations that all field these rec leagues it's crazy like so there's a ton of support for it in this area and audi field is nice but it's small i guess you could convert nationals uh ballpark but i don't know if there'd be overlap with the nats or whatever dude the basic idea is you know it's not just this i think i, I was I, I had read somewhere that there might have been some like the way in which there's protests in the city and whatnot it may have dissuaded them but dude obviously dan snyder is part of this problem as well Everyone over there who's an Arsenal fan in the UK hates Stan Kroenke, which I don't in any way dissuade you from. But let me tell you something. However bad you think he is, magnify that times a thousand. Dan Snyder is the worst owner in sports. I mean the worst owner in sports. I, I, I would love to see who among major sports teams' owners is worse than this guy. I would, and I would love to hear the argument. Everyone's like, what about Dolan out of New York? Dolan is far more competent far more competent than anything Dan Snyder has ever shown himself to be. FedEx Field is in disrepair. They have no idea if they're going to have the the team has to play through either 2026 or 2027. So they might have to stay at FedEx all that time. They might not even have a new stadium by then. They turn the dude Dan Snyder is literally at this point an international embarrassment. He's an international embarrassment. I know I fell up my Twitter timeline with how much I can't stand the guy, and I'm sure people from all over parts of the country or the world don't really care or think it's a local issue. Now look how local it is. Now look how local. They don't even want to bring games here because of just how awful the situation is with getting to the stadium, the disrepair of it, everything associated with that team in general where the owner is now obviously going to have to testify about the nature of his club that he owns and the sexual harassment that goes on in there and everything like it, dude they're an international he's an international embarrassment that's why i can't co-sign on the team anymore i, I just you, i don't know how i'm good conscience and i see these because fa- i follow a lot of uh commanders reporters and then when they post bad news i see their mentions fill up with these fans being like yo i don't want to hear this anymore blah 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 like you just want to support this organization despite the fact that the guy at the helm of it is an awful human being who has done nothing but run the club that you love into the ground. Like, you just want to pretend like that's not a real thing or you want to pretend that, like, you can just enjoy it without that. Like, the whole experience is defined by that. To me, it's a very simple choice. Either he goes or I go. And obviously, he's significantly more important in every way than I am. I I totally understand that. But that's my rule. He is is awful for every... Dude, he is... And it's not like, you know... Jeff Bezos has a home here, but he doesn't like call DC home, but I know he owns the post. But, you know, like him and some other rich people, they come to town and they have, you know, it's all for show or whatever, but they do have like a philanthropic base and whatnot. And I know the commanders have tried to outreach on philanthropy in a number of ways. But let me explain to you like his reputation around town. You never see him out in town, ever. You never see him pictured on a red carpet. You never see him pictured at some charity event, unless it's like a commander's one that he's in charge of or whatever. Like, this dude has no profile in the city. And this is a city where people are desperate to be hobnobbing with, you know, whoever else's elbow. It's a joke in the city. Like, when you meet people, the first thing that they ask you is, who do you work for? Not what do you do, although they ask you that. Who do you work for? Who do you work for? It's all about who you rub elbows with here. And that dude is 
He's Bruno from Encanto. Like, just living in the walls. That's, that's who he is, bro. We don't talk about Bruno up in this bitch. Although, here I am doing it. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, wow. I, 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 was, I was disappointed in the natural sense of being disappointed. Like, oh, I would love for my city to be featured in a... You know, it's like, hell, I could take my daughter to a game. You know what I mean? I would love to take my daughter to a World Cup game. And I guess they're going to be in Philly, which is only like two hours away. So, it's not the end of the world or anything. But that's why. He has cast... Uh, dude, he just shadows over the whole city with his failure at this point. And when anyone wants to do business in the city, if he's at all involved in it, they want out. It just goes on and on and on and on. Think about it, dude. He lives in a place that the city itself is geographically very small. Only 700,000 people live in the city. Geographically, it's very, very small, right? But the surrounding area has like 7 to 10 million. It's a gazillion people in the area. So he's got three different jurisdictions he could play off each other to get a stadium, and he can't do it. Cannot do it. Despite the fact that when he bought the franchise, it has it had, up until even relatively recently, you know, a Super Bowl winning past within a few years. A little more than that, but, you know, seven, eight years, I think is roughly how far. Not, not that far. Not that far from when it won its last Super Bowl. And uh, a city that had a giant fan base. And he has done nothing but crushed it. Crushed it. And I don't mean like in the metaphorical, like, oh, isn't he doing a great job sense? I mean, like, he's destroyed it. He's He's destroyed it. Can't I, don't, I? I see these Commanders fans. Oh, like I'm excited for the season and what's blah 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 blah. And you know, I'm tired of hearing all the negative news. I can't. I love hearing the negative news. <laughs> it's like the more of that I hear, the more I realize that that dude is going to get. I don't know if he's going to get bounced, but he should not be able to do business without. Like, he should not be able to do business without a tidal wave of backlash splashing over him every time. I want him to feel it every single time he tries something. And he can insulate himself. You know, he's got however much million dollars in a, in a yacht, like a $60 million yacht or whatever. He, he, it's not going to be that easy. But that is my only hope. Until he's gone, he should be showered in the feces that he showers on people at FedEx, which, by the way, if you don't think is real, it in fact is actually real. Luke, how do you interpret pound-for-pound pound rankings? I don't. I think it's largely just a little game that people play. The Someone says, or what people mean when they say X fighter is the pound for pound greatest of all time. The idea would be, as we've talked about this before, in American, let's stick to American sports, but we have American baseball, we have American football, we have American, or we have the NBA, which is an in, in international league, but based here. The idea would be that, Yes, body type and size is naturally going to weed out a lot of different people from participating, but there are no actual weight class requirements in that sense, just sort of like what you can do on the job with the size and athletic profile that you have. But in combat sports, we have to, because of the advantages that confers, we have to limit that. So we give people weight classes. So the idea would be if everyone was not like the same size who would win, where, you know, Demetrius Johnson was like, scaled out and and John Jones was zoomed in but you know we're trying to make an assessment here where if weight classes didn't have to exist if we didn't have if we didn't have to have a need for them who could we say was the best fighter that either was existed or during this era or whatever the case right where if we didn't have this and it's a real need I think everyone could agree you have to you have to have weight classes for competition and safety's sake 
if you didn't have to have those, what would it mean for the better fighters to emerge? What, what would they look like and who would they be and whose record can we look at to determine that? Now, that's very, very difficult to do because it turns out controlling for weight class, can it, it, it makes cross-weight class comparison sometimes quite difficult. But that's sort of where I see it. Now, in terms of the actual rankings themselves, those are just fucking games we all play. I don't, I don't really care too much about those. Luke, with Max Holloway being an active legend, okay, you're just saying words. I mean, I agree, but, like, you have to say what that means. As well as having youth on his side, relative youth, he is in a very unique position that not a lot of other fighters find themselves in. What do you think would be the best course of action? Like I said on Saturday night, last Saturday, he should take a lot of time off, a lot of time off, a year or more, seriously. And I think make a big to-do about his comeback, and get as big a fight as he possibly can. I think have a, f you know, three to five more, something like that. I'd probably call it a day. Probably call it a day. That would be my view. I don't know if that's what he wants. I don't know if that's in any way in keeping with his goals or if that's even fair in terms of what he could actually do. But you're asking me at this point what I would suggest. Max has a lot going for him. He has accomplished an enormous amount. I think he goes into the Hall of Fame, no question. And so if I'm him and I can make money other places, I would prioritize my health. Let me tell you something. Health and wellness was not something I gave a ton of thought to at age 30, which is how old Max is. At age 42, I think about it every day. I didn't even give a lot of thought to my health and wellness at 35, 36, 37, maybe around 38 or 39. Now, you'd be like, oh, well, look, you're not a professional athlete. That's true. But I also haven't taken nearly the amount of physical abuse that he has. And I've got lingering injuries from all the stupid or otherwise ordinary things I've done. It's hard to explain to a young man the frailty that they actually experience because they don't feel it. And if you haven't felt it for 30 years of your existence, how can that be true? But let me tell you something, folks, that I'm... It's going to show. It's going to show up. It is going to show up. All of the things that you think are your natural state of existence, if you're a young guy, let's say 30 or under, or even 31, 32, something like that, you, it's not to say that you don't recognize there could be dangerous situations or that you're not good at managing risk. It's not so much that, but your internal sense of the need for self-preservation in all the different ways in which your body and mind could fail you I do think there's a gap there. I certainly experienced one. And it's hard for them to make long-term choices with basically short-term information. And by the way, at 42, it's not like I've got it all figured out. Jesus Christ, I'm far from it. I can only imagine how much more difficult things are going to be at 62 or if I could even make it that long. But I'll tell you what my goals are now. One, I have to finish this weight loss journey, which I just hit pause on for the last like six months. I need to finish it. And then what I need to do is I have seen an enormous amount of research at this point that the biggest thing that will affect quality of life as you age and mobility and everything else as you get into that, that not the stage of life I'm in now, but the one that comes after this one, let's say at 60 or 65 or whatever, is muscle mass. Not that you have to be all fucking crazy bricked up, but that there is a direct correlation between, for men especially, for quality of life and how much muscle mass they have as they take into those years where building it back can be quite difficult, if not impossible. 
And so my goal is to trim off the excess, yes. But more than that is to put together um, some kind of sustainable workout regimen that gives me the requisite muscle mass, lean muscle mass that I need to take into this next generation of my life. That, that's really how I'm thinking about it. As you put it, with that last victory, do you believe Volkanovsky has finally turned the fan base into the final stage of grief and that they will accept him now? I, I, I don't know fully. I mean, they finally have accepted him in terms of his rightful place as the dominant 145 figure. Okay. That's, that seems inevitable. I don't know that that means that he's a star now. Like... I actually feel like he would need some real big accomplishments and some real big opponents to meaningfully do that. And maybe some very important wins like the the Korean zombie one wasn't even competitive, you know. The Ortega one was better for him in that sense. But definitely he has proved that he's the top dog at 145. But I don't know if that, like, I still think Max is much more popular, you know. Luke, would you agree that UFC's Hall of Fame is much more akin to the NFL team's Ring of Honor? Yeah, that's exactly what it's like. Luke, how can you advocate for Hamill versus Jones being ruled a no contest? Well, I don't mean it in the most literal... S- I don't know if you guys can hear Tukes. I don't mean that in the most literal sense that the rules clearly dictate that. What I mean to say is I watched that fight live. You know. It shouldn't go on his record that... And you guys know I don't have any nice things hardly to say about John as a person. But as a fighter, it was unfortunate the way things went. And I just feel like someone who's accomplished what he's accomplished. It would be a little, it'll be a little, it'd be neat if we didn't have that weird blemish on it. Uh, I'm happy to acknowledge all of the blemishes that he brought on himself. And yeah, you could say he brought that one on too. But like, dude, I, I watched that fight live as it happened. It, Felt like he should have gotten a warning in real time. I realize that that's not necessarily a requirement. And because Matt couldn't continue, that it forced the hand. And so I, I get it. I get it. But it just feels like it all feels a little silly. It all feels a little silly. I mean, you got to be careful, especially with like, you know, athletes who you, whatever line of it may be that you don't necessarily care for as people, you got to make sure that you give them their due as fighters. You got to make sure. You can't like use that as a, cudgel to to beat up their resume because you otherwise have some kind of issue with them like John's very I mean you know I don't need to tell you how good he is we'll see how good he is at this stage I don't I don't know the answer to that that I have some questions about but what he's done has been beyond compare It seems like middleweight and up, there's a surge of movement and striking-based champions compared to lowerweight classes where wrestling is generally more dominant. Lowerweight classes equal less power and knockout threat means grappling and wrestling can be more effective compared to higher weight classes where strikes are more impactful. Well, that probably is some truth to be said for that, although power carries all the way down to 135 and even lower. I would say the bigger issue there is that when you start getting to the upper weight class guys... um, Well, let me see this. Even the very best heavyweight champions, it's just very taxing to wrestle at a higher weight class. It's very, very taxing. Guys can do it. But, you know, Kane was 
very much the guy who had shown that like wrestling in the way that he had wrestled is something that you know was fairly unique to Kane, even DC to an extent. Um, but you know, wrestling in the way that those guys do down there is very difficult. Plus, if you're an elite athlete in those upper weight classes, a lot of them have been peeled off to other sports, which is not by itself the argument, but it does play a role. Um, there seems to be a natural evolution in this direction. <coughs> I don't know. It seems to me a little bit overstated. I have to think more about it. It seems a little bit overstated. I just think you know you have to ask these guys what is reasonably possible given the taxation on their cardiovascular systems. And striking is always going to be less taxing. Wrestling is extremely taxing. And you're like the ones who are good at it, yeah, but they're also efficient at it too. They don't they don't have to work as hard as like like Habib does, you know, to keep Iaquinta down or something like that. Like that was a lot of work. You know, could a heavyweight really do something like that, that kind of output with that kind of exertion for five rounds? A couple of them could, but it's just too much work. I just think it's I just think it's a la- it's a it's a labor issue. Uh, let's see. Look, I've been following you for many years in Morocco. Damn. Where few people can watch, uh, care about MMA. But now I live in Vancouver, British Columbia. Hell yeah, Vancouver's a great place. And it's cool to be able to watch MMA and sports bars with other people. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, oh, he's asking for recommendations on things to do in Columbia. Bro, just email me. I'm not going to do that here. Uh... I will happily give you recommendations of things to see in Colombia. There's a million cool things to see, but I'm not going to do it here. This person's like, I want to talk MMA at work, and my coworkers think that stuff is too violent for me. Yeah, stop bringing it up at work. Stop that. Dude, my number one fucking thing that I walk away... I don't work in an office anymore, and now I don't really do that. But back when I did train and I worked in an office, if people were like, yo, bro, let's talk about the fights this weekend or or the worst. Not, not even that so much. I talk about the fights. But like, yo, bro, I trained jujitsu at this blah, blah, blah gym. And even was, half the time, it wasn't even a real gym. It was like, you know, that dude from Detroit who's just like finessing everyone out of their paychecks. But it would be like, I, I'm like, dude, these people who show up everywhere to talk, tell you about their jujitsu lives, it's like, get the fuck out of here. I don't give a fuck about who you know. No, 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 no. I will talk to my jujitsu friends about jujitsu. I'm not going to the workplace to have a conversation about someone who thinks having, doing jujitsu is a substitute for having a personality. Not doing that. And I know people watching jujitsu now are getting all pissed off. And these are the people that got rash guards hanging all over their house, you know. And don't do fuck all else with their time except this. And dude, I'm not even telling you not to do that shit. Like, life is short. You want to spend it on the mats? Go spend it. Please, by all means. The, the worst thing you can do in life is not make yourself happy if that makes you happy. But what I'm trying to tell you is going to the workplace and trying to force that world onto people who aren't involved in it is a desperate cry for help. Please don't do that. Please, no one gives a shit that you go and roll around and train jiu-jitsu after. They don't give a fuck. They don't care. They're not going to care. You're never going to get them to care. Stop 
Stop. You you look like a weirdo. Stop doing that. Have friends in jujitsu that you can talk all this stuff with. Oh, but Luke, people shouldn't have to silo their lives. Let me tell you something. If I meet a random person, they you know obviously at this point you know if they know MMA, it does tend to happen that they know who I am. Not always, but commonly it happens. Yeah, I'll talk to them about it. But if someone doesn't know who the fuck I am for whatever reason, and they somehow train jujitsu and I, I'm anonymous to them, which is great. I am definitely not talking about that shit with you. Not going to do it. Not going to do it. It's a separate world. Treat it as such. They're not integrated in the ways that you would imagine. Leave that shit alone. <laughs> I'm telling you, bro. I, I would used to be with people who I trained with, and I'd, you know, we'd go hang out, and I'd bring a friend from like ordinary life along, and they would want to start chatting it up about jujitsu. I'd be like, yo, fucking stop. Stop doing that shit. Please stop doing that shit. Yo, your boy has congestion from the Rona. Um, let's see. What's one that interests me? Another question about Izzy and Alex being like, I had watched the first two fights, they say. I believe they were both pretty even. I would agree with that, actually. In the first fight, Alex was able to win two of three rounds. In the second fight, Izzy, this person writes in their opinion, was winning all the rounds up until the knockout. Yeah, he was. He was beating his ass. Um, I do think it's going to look a little differently. You watch that fight with Izzy. That, 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 you tell me that's a recognizable Izzy. It, it seems like a... And, and, and Pereira, for that matter, too. They're very different. Luke, I've been noticing, or at least it's my perception online, that many athletes of even NBA and NFL caliber hire credentialed personal trainers, but that these trainers often use what is described as fad methods, which can use, which can, I guess, contribute to injury uh, training. Injury in training would be the high-profile case of Joel Seedman. Uh, if this is the case for athletes from NFL, NBA, I can only imagine how this might potentially take place within the MMA community, which seems less regulated. Yeah, yeah. People in fight sports love giving their money away. They don't make much of it, and they love to give it away to absolute frauds and quacks and backstabbers. It's amazing. It's amazing how much money is given away to just fraud. Um, you know, you would want a trainer, in my judgment, that it'd be great if they had fought it sometime, or maybe they, you know, someone's a black belt in jiu-jitsu, but also has, like, really good credentialing and proper education. They understand, you know... They truly understand exercise science, and they can build very important programs. Because in that sense, they have a real, they have a clear understanding of the physical toll. They've lived through it, but not only that, they've seen other athletes and and all the different situations that they've navigated. And then they also can match that against the you know that's applied science, right? Because you can match it against the academic profile. Um, but it doesn't necessarily need to be them either. I thought the Marinoviches got a lot out of BJ Penn the first time that they worked with him. And it was only one Marinovich brother the second time. They did amazing. They do. When BJ was training with the Marinoviches, it was it was insane. Now, how many of their methods are tested? I don't know. But they did get pretty good results. But I did see, a, who's the um, QB for the commanders, the backup one? Um, Heineke. Heineke trains with some guy whose name I can't remember. And he's got these guys doing all kinds of weird balancing acts with unilateral weight loading and all this stuff. And that dude did a debate with Dr. Mike Isretel. Dr. Mike Isretel, it shouts to Dr. Mike Isretel if he ever sees this. I tweeted his video 
this or this week talking about what strength does for you if you're on or what steroids do for you if you're on strength. Of course, everyone decided that that video was about things that it had nothing to do with and were telling me all the myriad benefits that come with steroids. My mere point was that if you watch the video before commenting that what was said in the video, which was not my research, it's the all of the applied research that he was reacting to, is that, remember, it's not like you can't gain a ton by doing steroids, but what they basically have done is they've measured the highs of the weights by weight class, by what people can press in tested versus non-tested federations, and the difference, and there is some variance, but the difference by weight class or by gender, but the average difference is about 10%. Now, you might say, oh, that's, you know, Look competitively, if I can lift 500 pounds and you can lift 550 pounds, that's an enormous gap. Yes, of course it is. It has significant, as I wrote in my initial, dude, no one fucking reads anymore. In my initial tweet, I was like, this carries significant um, competitive implications. Yeah, obviously, obviously. But it, doc, Dr. Israel's point in that video is explicitly, you know, people think that you can take steroids and you can uh, get strong as fucking Superman. And yes, if you are 150 pounds and you take steroids and you balloon up to 200 pounds, you're, you're, you're the amount of weight you can then lift is off the charts. But then that would still be regulated relative to the weight class where 200 people, 200 pound people lift, right? Because part of what steroids do is they add muscle tissue to you. But strength relative to weight, what do steroids actually do for you? And the answer is about 10%. And again, I acknowledge fully that there are there, dude, there should be tested and non-tested federations. Like this is not an argument about that. People turn that into what about all the other benefits? What about MMA? I'm like, dude, did none of you motherfuckers watch the video before I posted it? It's got nothing to do with MMA. It's a and it's got nothing to do with all the myriad benefits that come with steroid use. It's just about what can you actually expect in terms of pure strength gains. Um, measured against weight class? And the answer is about 10%. It's about 10%. Give or take a little bit here or there. 10%. Anyway, uh, and that's not like back of the envelope math. That's from studies that have been done. And Okay, anyway. Mike Isratel does this kind of stuff all the time. So by the way, he has a whole video out on the negative effects of anabolic drug use. Like, you should check that out too. Point I'm trying to make here is, Mike, Dr. Mike Israel did a debate with the dude who is the trainer for Taylor Heineke, the one who's got all these like insane banded unilateral weight loading methods. And dude, Dr. Israel took him to school. I mean, it was, it was, it was, pfft, crushed him, crushed him. It's not to say that everything, I forget the other guy's name, um, does is totally bizarre and has no benefit and is, you know, all a bunch of snake oil. It's that the preponderance of it and some of the precepts used to train don't seem to match what the larger data says. And Isratel and the guys at Juggernaut Training Systems and the guys at Renaissance Periodization, they're very keen observers of what the data actually says, right? You can like that the answer on steroids and strength measured against weight class is 10% or you can hate it, but show me that that isn't Show me that's a misrepresentation of the available science. Show me that. Show me where that's a misrepresentation. It's not. Uh, so, yeah, do I see all kinds of just absolute bullshit? I mean, not only do I see in MMA all kinds of bad training, 
but like training that shortened people's careers. There's a whole video floating around of Cain Velasquez doing like leg extensions with like 300 near on either right, right around like 300 pounds, and he's like doing max reps, like terrible for you, terrible for you, and all kinds of people. And by the way, how many fighters train themselves like? You know, it kind of became a joke, although he cleaned it up. So, you know, you give him credit. But, like, how many people, like, and, and he's not alone, by the way. Bryce Harper was doing it. How many, pro, let's just say that. How many pro athletes have you seen uploading video of them doing deadlift? And everyone's like, oh, but what really is, everyone thinks when someone posts a deadlifting video, the question is whether or not they are strong. Whether or not they are strong is not the question, although it's a very important question. The question is, yo, is this guy whose body is the way in which they make money, are they going to fucking destroy it by doing it mechanically this way, if they do it often enough? Now, Bud Crawford did one where he had, you know, shoes on and the form wasn't all that clean, but it wasn't super dangerous. I don't, oh, no, actually, I think his was pretty bad. I saw one that wasn't so bad recently. But, you know, Bryce Harper had a terrible one. Tony initially, although he has since cleaned it up, had a terrible one. It's like, dude... I only bring this up to not say that I am stronger, that anyone gives a shit how much I can lift. It's to say, dude, there's a safe way to do this. There's a range of safe ways to do this. And I don't make money off my deadlift, or nothing to do they, but I don't make money off my body in that sense, my, the physical performance of it at its peak. I don't make money that way. Uh, they do. You would think that having some kind of awareness of like the mechanical safety of it all would be paramount but no dude this is what i mean young people and i, I you know i can say that now because i'm middle-aged like a dirtbag but do they just don't think about their long-term health because they've they can't they can't conceive of it any chance we could see a live mk in new york i would love to i'm sure we can i don't have any plans but i'm sure we can Uh, Izzy speaks slash hints about an improving ground game. So far in his MMA career, he has attempted zero takedowns. Do we see a takedown attempt in the Alex P fight, or is this a classic kickboxing fight with four ounces? Yeah, that's the big question for me. This is, you guys know, like, I have more nice things to say about the champion than most other people, including inside MMA, including people who like Izzy. I have, I have a very high opinion of him. But it doesn't mean I have an opinion of him that I think is everything he does is perfect. And the argument that you've heard me make on MK is about his A and his B game. Every fighter has one where they have their A game, which is their very best skill set, and they've used the vast majority of the time. Um, and they have a B game. And the question is, how potent is the B game? An example I've given of someone who has a potent B game would be Kamara Usman, right? Where his wrestling is just, you know, an absolute game changer. But his striking game is enough to win and defend titles. Like, it's that good, right? Um, so he's a clear case where that can be quite beneficial. In the case of Izzy, he has a very, very dominant A game. And he's got one that's not labor intensive. Like, Kamaru's A game is labor intensive. I mean, his gas tank is insane, but he can do it. Izzy's A game is you know, the striking and however he wants to pursue that. Dude, even by the fifth round, he was breathing through his nose. It's not labor intensive. It's not easy. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But it doesn't physically require for someone of his skill 
a ton of labor to do it relative to other ones. But one of the things that kind of occurs to me is the fighters, unless you have like a Habib-like grip on the game, and maybe you could argue that Izzy does in the striking department. You could maybe argue that. But unless you have that, you have to have a reasonably developed B game. You have to. Otherwise, you can't you can't consistently win. Now, he is consistently winning, so I think Izzy's probably closer to that Habib level in terms of how much better as a striker he is. I mean, I bring this up all the time. Dude, you just look at his resume. Forget how it looked. And, of course, there were a couple of amazing stoppages along the way. But you, you look at who Izzy has beaten, how many times he's beaten a couple of those guys. It, it's It's absurd what he's doing. It's absurd. It's truly absurd. But I do wonder at some point when his speed and reflexes slow down or the judges don't necessarily see it his way or whatever, will he have a B game to go to? Um, Pereira is an interesting test case for that because I can't imagine who he's going to fight, is he? Who's going to have as underdeveloped, not a poor game, but as underdeveloped in the grappling and then the wrestling department as Pereira is going to present him, right? Because Izzy is, at this point, the champion. So he's going to get only the people that move to the top of the division. Now, Pereira has been fast-tracked, but just look at the everyone else. You can't say that Izzy's been like just getting gimme fights. The guy beat Robert Whitaker twice and stopped him once, right? I mean, come on. That would be a silly thing to argue. Uh, this would be, I mean, maybe he has all the success in the world, on the feet. But here's the situation. This is the one I keep going back to. Maybe this is not likely. Maybe this won't happen. But what happens if Izzy is having trouble on the feet? Not getting his ass kicked, but not winning. Not winning. Like losing round one. Losing round two. Losing round three. Does he have a sufficient B game to go to in order to win that contest? I don't know the answer to that. He certainly has showed on the defensive side a very strong B game, but that's not really a look at it. Again, survive, defend, attack. Those are the levels. Uh, what does Izzy do against an opponent who can either match or exceed him on the feet, forcing him to go to some other part of the game? Now, maybe that person doesn't exist. Maybe Pereira isn't that guy. Maybe Pereira goes in there and Izzy's still better than him. That's great. But this is why I talk about A and B games. Izzy, one of two things is true. Either Izzy's grip on the middleweight division by virtue of how good his striking is. And again, I can't overstate this. Dude. You get these high IQ guys who have developed a way to win without taking damage. It's hard to talk them out of that. Once they realize, dude, that's like a get-out-of-jail-free card. Even your, most of your best champions can't win without taking damage imagine that you can win without basically taking damage it's hard to talk them out of that it's hard for them to process that it's hard for them to to go back on that but the thing i just really want to drive home here is it might be true that izzy's grip on the division in terms of how good his striking is puts him in a position where he doesn't have to develop a b game but unless you have that habib level grip and you don't have a sufficiently advanced B game, your title's going to get taken from you eventually. May not be this fight. May not be the one after that. Who the hell knows? So there's these are the central questions we have to ask here. One, how good is his striking, now that we have another elite kickboxer with a win over him in kickboxing, a couple of them, how good is his striking going to be in a fight like that? We shall see. And if it's not good enough to beat him on striking terms but he's still alive to fight, 
has he sufficiently developed the other parts of his game that he needs to get that dub? Boy, those are big questions. Those are big, big, big questions. And that's why, to me, this fight is the most interesting one. I'm not paying attention to Izzy versus Pereira as a function of like how exciting I think it is. Those are interesting things. That's hardly dismissible. Like, again, you pay money for something and you want to see something exciting. I get it. I totally get it. Um, but there's a huge question, two huge questions involved in this fight. And the two biggest ones aren't even, is Izzy the best fighter in this division? The question is, you know, does he is he a Habib-like figure in this division relative to what he can do and the rest of the game can't catch up? Because, by the way, like, what's the story here? The story to me is that the rest of the division has defensively figured out how to not get finished. I had talked about this from some of the data that's been out there from Fightmetric as well as the tweet from E. Casey Layden. The gap between himself and the division has shortened, but it's shortened only kind of on one side, which is that defensively they're not getting polished off. But offensively, they still can't really do shit to him. And until someone can cross that next line, he's just probably going to keep being champion. But against Pereira, you begin to wonder, Pereira, you begin to wonder, is he a Habib-like figure relative to how, what, can he lord his skill over the division no matter who the opponent is? And then B, if not, can a B skill set get him the win against a very green opponent when it comes to those particular dimensions? I will tell you, if he can't win because he's getting outstruck and he doesn't have a B game to go to, that would be a bit of a double whammy, right? All right. Let's see what kind of um, donations you got. Again, you don't have to. This is a free thing. But if you want to, certainly not going to say no to it. Um, your boy's got bills. All right, let's see what we got going on here. <coughs> Excuse me. I apologize for all of the... Uh, COVID I'm blowing. I have to disinfect everything when this is all over, which is going to be so fun. Let's see. All right. Is 115 GOAT unsolvable because it's a game of... I don't know what the fuck that means. Sorry, Luke. Cronky robbed me four of... This person is writing words and I don't know what they mean. If Charles isn't the champ and still fighting at UFC 300, would him and Miller be a perfect fight since it's a trilogy and it's 1-1 if Jim wins? I mean, let's cross that bridge when we get there, yeah? Can we get a resume review on Ronda? I feel she was the most dominant women's champ. She had the same competition as Amanda and beat people, uh, the, and beat people more emphatically. I would love to do one. It's a great idea. I would love to do that. Yep. Great idea. There's a, dude, there's, a, there's so many things to be done. So many. We haven't even done and like on all the ideas we've proposed for videos. Like We've barely tried half of them. So yeah, there's so many things to do. With two more separate KO losses and bouts within the last 30 days, how is Silva, Bigfoot Silva, being licensed? He's not. He's going to places where he doesn't have to have one. Should media cover it? We should cover it in the sense of what is happening, but not anything more than that. Uh, happy third birthday to Morning Combat. Here's to the next three. Thank you, Stephen. Yo, bro, it's the third anniversary of MK. How fun is that, you know? And folks have asked me, like, oh, uh, after three years, did you guys accomplish what you wanted? Well, I got to tell you, in many ways, we've done way more than I ever thought possible. But in other ways, no, we haven't accomplished some of the things that I wanted to accomplish. So, um, 
that's the great part. Like life never goes exactly the way you expect to do your best. And you try to plan for the future. And um, I'm very proud of what we've gotten right. And I'd love to do better what we've gotten wrong, you know. Do you all need a European correspondent? And if so, where can I send my resume? Dead serious. You can, I don't think we have the money, the budget for one, but you can hire or you can send an email to uh, morningcombat at gmail.com. If the UFC is basically going to laugh off what DC did with the towel, wouldn't it seem they have an obligation to give Charles his belt back? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Listen, nothing ever seems to matter in MMA unless enough people care, right? No matter what it is whether it's COVID policy, which I'm not trying to get back into, or whether it's what to do about weight cutting or PEDs or whatever. Everyone's got a different view. If you have a fighter, if you from a fan, promoter, whatever. All these different views come together. And if there's enough of a will and enough of it matters and the stakeholders are forced to change by virtue of that pressure, then you get those changes. I just don't see that there's enough pressure there, which fine. Like, do I, I, do I lose sleep at night knowing that DC held the towel? I really don't. But... But it wasn't the commission that stripped Charles Oliveira. The UFC did in conjunction with their own policies. Remember, the promoter controls their own titles in the sport. How does that differ from boxing? Top rank doesn't control their titles. Golden Boy doesn't control their titles. Matchroom doesn't control their titles. The WBA, the WBC, the WBO, whatever. They control their titles. In MMA, the promoter controls their own titles. The promoter stripped them. The promoter stripped them. If we're just going to look the other way on DC, which fine, fine, give, give fucking Oliveira his belt back, dude. Like, what, are, what is that about, you know? Any thoughts on Ian Gary's performance against Gabe Green? What would you say is next for those two? I talked about this on, um, on Extra Credit. I thought, I thought Ian Gary looked really good. I mean that sincerely. Here's what I'm noticing about Ian Gary. The Irish are very excited about him. I understand. The Irish ride for their own like nobody does. It's crazy how supportive. Well, the Brazilians are nationalists too in ways that are hard to describe. But for sure, for sure, on the short list of countries that ride or die for their own guys, Ireland's at either at or near the top of that list. I mean, it's crazy how supportive they are. And that's a good thing. But sometimes it can get some of their younger prospects into a little bit of trouble, which is that they begin to put pressure on them to be ready for things in ways that they are not. And I know what you might say. Oh, we've seen young fighters at 24 who are already champions. Everyone. Everyone's journey is going to be different. Everyone's readiness is going to be different. What you want to do is just assess what you have right in front of you, see what you've got with it, and then make an appropriate next step based on the responses you're getting from this person based on competition. And what I'm getting a sense of is that Ian Gary is clearly bright. He's clearly well-trained. But... He fought a guy named Gabe Green, but to me, Ian Gary is a little bit on the... I wouldn't say green, but it's clearly true to me that his game is far from either complete or fully developed, even among the things he's already quite good at. His punch selection was great. His combination was great. His use of range was great. His lateral movement was great. I mean, there was a lot that was great about that fight. He did a really good job. Like, that was a strong performance. But it's also pretty clear to me that he's got, however far he's going to go, there's some distance between now and that moment. So why put him in situations that could hinder that development? Listen, some people skyrocket, they're shot out of a cannon and they become belt holders, you know, right away. You know, they're just they just they're just built for it in that way. It must be nice, you know. But there's a lot of people who take a long 
path or a different path or a windier path to eventually get to the same place. Let people be on the journeys they are in. It's not a comment about his upside. It's a comment about promotional pressures potentially undercutting his actual technical development. And the thing that's going to carry him the furthest is proper technical development. He did a great job against a tough opponent. Let's build him slowly. Volkanovsky versus Saeed Nurmagomedov. I would favor Volk. I'd favor Volk. Think we will ever get any amazing tell-all behind-the-scenes MMA stories in the future? Anything good or bad you think will pop up? Most of the good stories are the ones that no one tells. I see all these shows where all these people are talking about what so-and-so said on social media. Dude, it's kabuki theater times a billion. And I realize MK is guilty. We do it too. You know, Everyone makes their money off of it. But let me just explain to you. None of those are the stories going on. None of them are the stories. The stories are about which promoter is fucking which fighter, which fighter is fucking over which manager, which manager is fucking over which sponsor, who are all the different groups battling, what group is trying to stick it to the other one, and no one ever goes on the record about them. No one ever wants to go on the record about them. Those are the real stories. So when I see all these people like, you know, trying to develop a reputation based on the acceptance of public squabbles as if this is like a degree of bravery. Yeah, it's not. It's not. It's not that at all. Did you watch the edit of UNBC? Look up um, my name, Drunk at Beer House. I have not. I'm sure that it's terribly embarrassing, but it's the internet, and they're going to have their say about it, and that's that. Uh, congratulations on three years. It's okay if you can't say my name. Uh, let's see if I can do it. It's probably. I don't even know if it's some poor name, so I'm probably going to get myself in trouble with this. Uh, and here's my terrible French accent. Le petit uh, vicomte. I don't know how you say it. So, there you go. I've been listening to you since the Jordan Breen show days, a long time ago, when you described DC Blossom tourists as locusts descending. <laughs> they come every 17 years, the actual locusts, but... Uh, oh, what is it? The cicadas, excuse me. But, uh, yes... Yes, dude. I, listen, there's many wonderful things to do during tour season in D.C., even when you live here. But you got to deal with some diggity donks. Luke, do you like Tom Waits? Yeah, actually, um, one of my in-laws has done a couple of his uh, album covers. Can you believe that? Uh, what era album is your favorite? I'm not that good with Tom Waits. I'm not super into him that way. You'd have to, that's a better question for B.C., but like from what I've heard, yeah, he's great. Uh, someone says amazing content. Thank you. Also, Silver Eagle is Silver Eagle is a solid range. You know, I'm not the biggest gun lover ever, but I do believe in understanding guns. I believe in and gun safety. I believe I do believe in intelligent use cases around gun ownership. And Silver Eagle, based on my experience there, I've only been the one time. Although I've had friends go a million times. Uh, high quality range, high quality range. Out there in, um, I think it's like in Ashburn. I think it's where it is, Ashburn, Virginia. It's not far from. Uh, it's not far from um, the commander's headquarters. They held Cagezilla events there, if I remember correctly. They used to. They're now in Manassas. But, yeah, um, Silver Eagle is a good place. I went to a place. I'm not going to say the name of it, but, like, I said it on MK. The dude who ran it, you know, I'm not trying to – it's not about fat shaming, but it, like, it does make me weird when I see, like, crazy overweight people who are, like – this would be true of any person, but I don't know. It was just a weird feeling I got. 
when this dude had like knives all over him, guns around his belt everywhere, guns in his in his ankle strap, and he was eating like a sandwich. And it was a like, gross meal. I don't know. It does sound like a fat shaming. I'm not trying to, because Lord knows, you know, let he who's without sin cast the first stone. But um, the ones, the the range safety officers who are moderately armed, who are in good shape. I don't know. They just always seem to have better, safer ranges. I, they're just, I, it's, I don't have a good explanation for it. it. Probably, there's probably no science to it, and this is probably a terrible thing to think. But the, in the case of the one range I went to, where I knew people like. Like, I didn't know the people who had done it, but I had seen suicides there. Or not in the news, not personally. And, you know, all kinds of other incidents and shit. Like, ugh. Maybe, maybe give me the heebie-jeebies. How irritating has it been listening to the mouth breathers that claim that Munoz dived? This happens fairly often. There's often injuries that look not so bad or whatever. And then the fan base decides that the fighters are malingering. Now, listen, the fighters are not above the concept that they would malinger to get out of something. That's not crazy. But um, it's usually done when the evidence is fairly poor. You know, that's the weird part. Happy MK anniversary. There are very few things at their peak nowadays. Movies, music, motorsports, etc. I like all I like better from 20, 30 years ago. MMA is peak MMA sports podcasting. Jordan's NBA level good. Thank you and please keep going. I love modern MMA. I know a lot of people are tuned out on it and don't love it that much and like the different day. Listen, every you can't browbeat people into liking what they don't like, but if you're into the science of fighting, dude, every weekend is the greatest weekend there is. I love where MMA is at these days in terms of the science of fighting. Now, the culture of MMA is disgusting and makes me question all of my life decisions and what place I actually want to hold in a community of people who not really don't share my ideas, but many of which, um, you know, hold utterly repugnant views. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is on that, but the science of fighting, dude, it's an exciting time to be a fan of the science of fighting. And in many ways, it's not so much crazy advancements, although it is that in terms of new ways to fight, although it is that a little bit, it's a lot of taking in old, neglected wisdom and fitting it into a modern sensibility. Like how boxing is becoming more relevant in MMA. The, the tools of boxing. Rolling, right? Under hooks, where no one used to roll under hooks back when I first used to watch. It's, 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 it's a great time. It's a great time. And then the guy whose name I pronounced in French with my terrible French accent <coughs> said, you nailed it. And you said nothing that could get you in trouble. That probably means I'm getting into trouble for saying whatever I said. But uh, in just the same, sorry for the changes on this. I'll keep my fingers crossed for my daughter. Hope she doesn't get too sick. And uh, I'll be fine. I'm, I'm good to go. But um, I appreciate you guys understanding the delay on this and everything else. If I told you to email me about Columbia recommendations, email me, LukeThomasNews at gmail.com. I will get you a response. There's, I, got a, I got a ton of good recommendations, especially for Cartagena. Oh, Cartagena, there's so many fun things to do. Also, heads up, if you ever travel to Bogota, the English there is not so great. The level of English in Cartagena is significantly higher, right? So a couple things to keep in mind. Okay, but that out of the way, I appreciate you guys watching. Have a safe weekend. If you have COVID, do what I'm doing and keep your ass inside. Please don't give that shit to other people, all right? just That's, a, that's all I can ask. Just get, to, get tested. 
Make sure you don't have it. If you have it, keep your ass inside. All right? Please? Okay. Just that, the way you can save people like my daughter from getting it. You get me sick, whatever. I take on those risks. But And I realize I got it from work. But at the same time, for the love of God, if you are in a situation where you can prevent getting somebody else sick with this, please do so. Especially a young kid. Yes? Okay. Love you guys very much. You're the best. Have a great weekend. And until next time, stay frosty.